I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Brooke Hopstock Madsen. Brooke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. Now, you're an, an environmental geochemist, right? That's what I go by, yep. What is that? Um, that's actually, even though it sounds specific, still a really broad term. Uh, for me, it means that I collect samples to measure metal composition of the environment. Um, I specifically use biomonitors, um, which are byproducts or once living things, which we use to sample the environment geochemically. Wow. Yeah. Which biomonitors do you use? Oh, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, I work with Honey from Vancouver and Brussels, Belgium. And then I also have some baleen whale plates, which are from the Hudson Bay. They were collected from beached whales during uh, subsistence hunting voyages. And then I have um, Pacific salmon that I'll be collecting from Vancouver and Japan in the next year. Oh, wow. That's really exciting. Yeah, I'm excited. This podcast uh, has had people from all different uh, levels of their careers. At what level are you at? Uh, I am starting my third year of my PhD. However, I started my first full year during COVID online. So it's kind of a weird feeling, but um, I would say I'm about midway through my PhD. Oh, wow. And what was it like uh, starting a PhD during COVID? Um, a bit surreal. I don't actually feel like I got the experience of feeling like a PhD student right away. Um, I was transitioning out of working and, uh, you know, attending my courses online in another country. So that was a bit strange. But um, the following semester, I started doing lab work and it kind of slowly started to feel more like I was a student again. Where were you? Uh, I was in Kentucky in the U.S. actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, I worked um, for the Department of Environmental Protection for a few years there uh, with organic contaminants. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it was a great experience. (laughs) Now... Have you been studying environmental geochemistry all through your career, or is this a new uh, emergence? I would say I've always been interested in contaminants, to be honest with you, but um, my undergraduate degree is in geology and environmental science, and I did that in Michigan. So my learning was really oriented around the Michigan geology, so huge emphasis on freshwater systems, groundwater, dunes, um, sedimentary structures, and then... um, some more ancient geology when we went up to the UP where Michigan's oldest rocks are. The UP? Uh, yeah, the Upper Peninsula. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No worries. That sounds really exciting. It was great. And what is it about contaminants that uh, floats your boat? Um, I think it's just the intersection that they um, they have between protecting the environment and conservation and also relating to human health. Um I think in environmental science, you get kind of a unique opportunity to work in an area of science that directly affects a lot of other fields. Um, And so I think that's also quite motivating, thinking about understanding contaminant systems and then how we can better remediate or understand the effects that they have on the environment and people. Absolutely. Um, 
I know that geochemistry has its fingers in many different scientific pies, uh, but I assume that environmental science also is very diverse. Um, and then when you combine the two, it's um, it's just exponentially more complex. <laughs> it is. I mean, even in our lab here, we as environmental geochemists are studying everything from fish liver to teeth. There's talk of doing some blood work. I mean, it's really quite broad and um, it's all linked to the same methodology. Most careers can be a bit circuitous. Uh, You mentioned that you had a stint in industry. Um, Have you had any other, um, I guess, dalliances in your career? Um, Is dalliance the right word? I know what you meant. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I... Before coming to this position, while I was still an undergrad, I had a really formative experience at Oregon State, where I worked in a clean lab, much like the one we have here at UBC. And um, I wouldn't necessarily call that um, that different from what I'm doing now, but I do think it largely impacted what I wanted to do here at UBC. Um, On the side, like I have, you know, other hobbies as well. I'm not just a scientist, but... In general, I think that having that time working for the government as well has given me a different perspective coming back as a student. Great. It's always amazing how those um, side projects that you take on uh, early in your career can completely change it. Absolutely. Were you a student working in that clean lab? I was. And actually, you saying that triggered a memory, which relates to your contaminant question. Um, When I was in my first environmental science class in Michigan, um, the Flint, Michigan water crisis was actually publicized. And so I think that that actually had a pretty large impact considering I'm working with lead now Mm -hmm. um, on my interests as a student. And so I think that a lot of those experiences do end up affecting your life for a long time in ways that you wouldn't really predict. Yeah. One, one news item, uh, which we forget years later, mm-hmm. uh, can completely change the trajectory of your career. Absolutely. Did they ever clean that up? Uh, I believe it is an ongoing project. I've been following actually a bit of the Mississippi situation with water right now, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not sure. I don't know if I feel embarrassed. I don't know. No, no. I mean, it's one of those things that's been going on in the background for so long that you assume it's been taken care of and then you find out it hasn't been. So yeah. And I think the, the legal recourse has been somewhat, um, disappointing. Yes. Yeah. On to happier things. (laughs) Can you tell me what you're working on right now? Yes. So primarily right now I'm in a writing stage, but um, when I came in, I was immediately working with honey samples that were collected during the COVID-19 pandemic in Vancouver. Um, In the past year, we actually expanded that project to collaborate with um, a group in Brussels. And uh, so now we have two data sets of honey that look at what the air metal quality was like in two different cities during COVID-19. The significance of that is that Vancouver is a relatively young, clean city, and it also has a pretty blended city structure. We don't necessarily have this concentric circle like most European cities have, where it's dense urban, suburban, and then quite rural. We're a lot more blended here with between industries. And uh, Brussels has that traditional city structure. And so the trends that we saw in the metal composition throughout the COVID lockdown are quite different. Um, And part of that we also believe is because Brussels has a much more extensive history of metal use because it's a much older city. Mm -hmm. And so seeing things like isotopic shifts in lead isotopes are just really difficult considering how significant um, or how long metal's been used in Central Europe. So you're saying that because Brussels has been using 
metals for hundreds of years, uh, their air is still polluted with it, with its contaminants. Yeah, we what we do see in lead isotopes is because um, lead is constantly redistributed throughout the environment. It's not necessarily something that um, it can go into sinks, but it doesn't really remediate itself. And so, um, leaded gasoline, for instance, still dominates a lot of our North American lead fingerprint. And so, same in Europe, a lot of what was mined for centuries is still somewhat predominant in the European lead signature. Wow. Yeah. I'm just amazed that it hasn't uh, dissipated around the globe and kind of homogenized. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it is becoming more and more challenging to use lead isotopes. So that's one of the, the challenges we face and the benefit of coupling it with other isotopic systems. <laughs> that's really exciting. Uh, now, this honey study has been done in Vancouver before. Did we notice a big drop during COVID when people weren't uh, commuting to and from work? That's a great question. Yeah, um, there was an extensive uh, full PhD completed on Vancouver uh, lead uh, lead isotopes in honey as well as uh, metal concentrations. And comparing to the previous years, we saw that um, there wasn't significant changes in the concentrations, which we somewhat contributed to that blended city structure, right? While there was less um, movement in general, more people were driving, less people were taking public transit. And actually in 2020 compared to 2019, we still saw a 1% increase of shipping out of the port of Vancouver. So, um, you know, the, the trends that we expected to see weren't necessarily perfect, but that's just part of environmental science. We wanted to take advantage of this once in a lifetime opportunity and sample to see what we might find. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's always amazing how scientists can mobilize that quickly for, um, to take advantage of a once in a lifetime opportunity. I remember hearing that after nine 11, um, mm -hmm. a lot of atmospheric scientists, uh, raced to um, study the skies with no airplanes zipping around. Interesting. I hadn't heard that. Because we had the three days with no flights. Um, you had a bit longer, but you still mobilized pretty fast to uh, study Vancouver during the calm of and terror of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I really should commend too, we work with a lot of community scientists on that project and they were willing to help and assist and stay covid safe while we were sampling during that time. And so um, I think it's a testament to to the citizen science and how people were excited and continually willing to help throughout that time. So it wouldn't have been possible without that. And so is that what you're doing your PhD on? Uh, as one prong of it is uh, the honey. Another prong of my PhD is working with Pacific salmon from Japan and BC to compare the metal signatures that we might see in their organs. And that essentially would be used in metal tracing, as well as perhaps looking at the movement of different fish stocks, if we could find significant enough differences. And then I have a third chapter that looks at time integrated change in baleen whale plates from whales collected in the Hudson Bay. So that would look at large scale changes in metal composition for a period of more than 30 years. These whales are about 30 to 50 years old. And what are the plates? Oh, that's a good question. It's like their teeth. It's the filter feeding mechanism. And so, yeah, the baleen whale plates grow almost like tree rings and they integrate their environmental composition as they grow. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing tool. Yeah. I mean, I've seen uh, the plates themselves. Never knew that, that that's what they were called and heard about them, but I didn't know they could measure age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're really often used by um, stable isotope geochemists to look at 
kind of seasonal fluctuations in migration and feeding. So uh, carbon and nitrogen tend to oscillate. They go up and down with feeding. And for the metals, there's actually more of an accumulation that we see. There's only been a couple papers put out recently and none with lead isotopes. So we're kind of hoping to get in there and maybe elucidate a little bit of what's going on. That's exciting. Yeah. It's better use for the plates than making corsets. True. Yeah, that's right. It was boning, wasn't it? In your studies, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Either something that was new to the field of science or even just something that was a, a discovery to you personally that uh, really surprised you? Yeah, actually. Um, during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think I was looking for some creative outlets and ways to get my brain ready to write scientifically. And I started playing around a little bit with um, writing creatively. And so I've I've gotten into writing poetry a little bit, which has been a bit of a self-discovery journey. But um, I think in relation to my work as well, just what we've been seeing in the differences between Vancouver and Brussels um, geochemistry during COVID-19 has been not necessarily a huge discovery, but a bit of a confirmation of what we were hoping to see, which in a way is exciting. So self-discovery with writing and then a little bit of research discovery. Being proved right is always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there will be many times when that won't happen. And uh, it's great that you're writing poetry. A friend of mine um, is a poet and he took me to a national poetry competition a few years ago and encouraged me to take it up. And then some other friends encouraged me to put it back down. So oh, I'm no. sure you're much better than no. I was. I think you should keep at it. That's ridiculous. <laughs> no, no, they were right. It's for the betterment of humanity. Fair. One of my favorite parts of this whole podcast has been uh, hearing about field stories. Uh, do you just work in the lab or do you do any field work? Well, I actually just added a field component, which is exciting. This fall, I will be going out to one of the hatcheries in BC to collect salmon. Uh, previously, people were just sending me essentially freeze-dried, ground-up little baggies of things, or I had little jars of honey I would collect. So that was a slight field component. But um, as undergrad, I really enjoyed some of the field trips. Um, we took one to California that was really memorable uh, with my small class of about 12 students. And I think that was a quite formative experience for me in geology. Oh, wonderful. Uh, do you have any field stories that you'd like to share? Or any lab stories where things um, go wrong, which I know is very frustrating for you, but often very entertaining for me. I mean, the only field story I can really think of, and I don't have any crazy Yukon work, was just on that field trip in California. I felt like, you know, it was almost like comical the way everything kept going wrong. Like the drought in California had just ended. And so our entire driving path was like washed out by landslides. And we made it to the Carrizo Plain, which is usually a desert where you can go see the San Andreas Fall. But because of the rain, it had exploded into the super bloom of flowers. And it was gorgeous. But we were on a road that said driving, not drivable during wet conditions. And it was raining. And as we read that sign, the ground beneath one of our vans just like gave and the tire was fully sitting in the dirt. None of us had cell phone services in the middle of the plane. We didn't make it to the fall because what was usually a road was now a lake full of brine shrimp, actually, um, because they had been dry and it hydrated with the, it was truly a bizarre oh. experience. But we, as a whole 12 geology class had to push the van out of the earth 
And <laughs> we were there like an hour wondering if we were going to stay there over the night. But um, we had a couple really strong guys that I think came through on that. Um, but that's really the only crazy field story I have. Nothing about bears or anything or helicopters. That still sounds gorgeous. Um, <laughs> I would love to see a super bloom. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. And we all bonded on the trip. So it was a, it was a nice time. Yeah. When things go wrong, uh, you tend to form the best relationships. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> kind of unfortunate. <laughs> now you've touched on this, um, but why is your research important? Why should we care about uh, what kind of metals are in the air over Brussels versus Vancouver? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, right now there's a lot of talk about green energy and um, at the center of that is metal. Um Mining is definitely not on the decline these days. Mm -hmm. And we're mining a lot more rare earths and metals that we haven't traditionally used. Um, So we don't totally understand some of those metal cycles, what concentrations of these rare metals entering the environment will, how will that affect people? And so I think in the scheme of climate change, like the push for green energy is only going to rise and, um, in a changing geochemistry under climate change conditions, we expect a warmer planet. We expect a more acidified ocean. All of these things affect the mobility and distribution of metals on the planet. And so I think in that context, um, it's important to continually understand the intricacies of these metal systems as they have subject to become, you know, enhanced really under these conditions. Yeah. It feels to me really relevant, but I, it is my work. So, no, no, that that's a perfect uh, explanation. You mentioned earlier how um, we filled our cars and our cities with leaded gasoline before we realized the impact of burning leaded gasoline in populated areas. Uh, and like you said, we're using these brand new metals now, and we haven't really studied what the impact is of mm-hmm. filling our cities with these new metals, these new materials. So. Better to do the science first and then to have the rollout uh, than the other way around. Absolutely. Yeah. And the the communities proximal to those mining communities um, will be most affected too. So I think it's important for us to do them justice as they are really sitting at the center of some of these global supply chains. And like you said, doing them justice, it is an act of social justice as well. Uh, It's often lower income communities, communities of of color, which are most impacted by um, environmental uh, failures. Um, yeah, the lead of gasoline impacted communities, which were close to freeways, um, the communities that are close to mining communities or centers tend to be lower income. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, Flint, mm-hmm. Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, let's go happy and cheerful from that note. <laughs> yeah, I always do this. Uh, why don't you tell me what the best or the most enjoyable part of your work is? Uh, that is an easy question. Definitely the best part of my work is collaboration. I am really lucky to be co-advised at UBC. So I have um, two lab groups, one with Dominique Weiss and one with Evgeny Pekmahov. And um Both of those individuals have really helped to shape my time at UBC and those lab groups have totally different, wonderful personalities. And so, you know, on one side, I'm working with really traditional hard rock geologists doing geochemistry. Um, And then on the other side, I'm working with biological oceanographers that try to answer totally different large scale oceanic questions. Um, And so I have just not hit my fill of collaborating with people. And I think it's the thing that keeps me around here at UBC. 
Excellent. Certainly with, again, these two really interdisciplinary fields coming together, um, you can't be a specialist in all the, the fields of science that you need to complete your work. And so you need to rely on other scientists to bring their expertise to uh, pick the low-hanging scientific fruit that uh, you would otherwise uh, spin your wheels trying to achieve. Absolutely. Not everything is sunshine and roses, though. Uh, what is the worst or the most challenging part of your work? I think one of the most monotonous things about doing precise geochemistry is all of the cleaning that we do. Um, we put every piece of equipment through three steps at minimum of heated 24-hour leaching, and then it has to be dried and matched up to the exact same cap and bottom, and it, ta it takes hours. So um, at times, I find that really taxing. Other times, I find running the instrument and troubleshooting really taxing. But both of those tasks, as when I'm in the right mood, can also be quite fun. So I think the trick is just changing things up enough so I don't get too in a rut with activities. Um, I will say, you know, working in isolation during COVID was a really big challenge, especially learning that I like the collaborative nature of my PhD so much. But um, in general, I would say just some of the monotony can be hard. <laughs> I will never complain about having to match my Tupperware tops and Tupperware bottoms again. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your uh, studies or your work in any way? Uh, I think coming into my program, I felt quite privileged um, as a white uh, cishet woman. Um, however, um, I do still feel actually quite aware at times of being a woman, depending on the setting. Um, my lab group um, has a lot of women, which has been awesome to connect with other women in science and other men for that matter. But um, yeah, I do think that there is a bit of a leaky pipeline for women that I still think about quite a bit, especially in my um, coursework and just thinking about how certain field experiences as a woman have been not the most ex including that being said, I think that geology has come a long way. And um, actually, the course I'm TAing right now, USC 516 with Brett Gilley, has been an amazing experience. We talk a lot about um, what geology looks like and what a geologist looks like. And he shared something about how most geology pages have a picture of a bearded white man on top of a mountain and says, come join our department. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know... I think that that's great and that's a facet of geology, but geology is for really everyone and it can look in a, a lot of different ways. Um, and I think uh, that push for accessibility and becoming more diverse and even thinking about how environmental science, like you said, communities of color are more likely to be impacted by some of those environmental problems. Um, we only stand to gain from recruiting and holding on to a more diverse geologic kind of team. So I, I feel strongly about that. So yeah, I think that geology um, is at a point right now where it's evolving and we're trying to become more accessible and more diverse, but we have a long way to go. And I just hope that I can be a part of those changes throughout my career. Hopefully the next generation of textbooks will have a bearded woman <laughs> on their cover. <laughs> yeah. Or someone rolling up a mountain would be awesome. Exactly. Um, yeah. And especially like you were saying before, there's so much value in, uh, 
having people with different perspectives, mm -hmm. uh, interdisciplinary work is really the way of the future, but also uh, different uh, personal lived experiences just makes for better science. Because what you and I might not see might be obvious to someone else. Uh, you are an American. Um, <laughs> yes. Is that obvious? <laughs> and Well, I mean, crossing a border uh, for work or study is really daunting to me personally. Mm -hmm. um, I will probably never leave Canada because I don't want to deal with a foreign immigration system. Um, so I think that's a huge hurdle uh, that you've also overcome. Uh, yeah, I guess I had considered that, but it, it, there are little things that we have to consider regularly about that. You're right. Yeah. You have to learn how to be a Canadian. Yes. Even if you're not a Canadian, but you have to learn how to live in our society, which um, even I don't know all the <laughs> little tips and tricks for being a successful Canadian. Very polite. Have to be very polite. <laughs> <laughs> At least on the surface. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of being polite, uh, do you find that environmental geochemistry is a really open and welcoming uh, community or is it more closed off and insular or a bit of both? You know, I think that the community has been really lovely in my experience. Um, it's smaller than you might expect. Um, I'm always amazed when I read co-authors, how many people have collaborated with other people that I've read. Um, so I think the community is quite small, but I think it's also very enthusiastic. And so because of that, I think it could be um, welcoming and there's so many applications. It's easy to get excited about it. So there's, there's plenty of work to go around. I think that helps. Environmentalism is certainly becoming more and more important uh, and it's very trendy right now, but geochemistry uh, is just this freaky science. Um, and I really mean it in the sense that you're scientific freaks in the best way, <laughs> <laughs> applying uh, geology and chemistry to fish and honey is um, delightful and not at all what I expected from scientists. Um, but yeah, you're combining two waves of the future uh, in a really cool way. <laughs> Thank you. It is kind of freaky, isn't it? <laughs> Now, if anyone's listening right now and would like to follow in your footsteps, uh, what advice uh, would you have for them? What courses or uh, even just lived experience would you recommend that they pursue to be a good environmental geochemist? I think for environmental geochemistry, I'll start with the courses. I think everyone should take analytical chemistry. I'm biased because I loved that course, but um, I mean, it's the fundamental piece of what we do is analysis and doing it well. So that's a good course to take um, and just some basic chemistry and environmental science if possible. Um, for life experiences, though, I think, like you said, there are so many different perspectives to be had that everyone brings something to the table. And even if you don't have analytical chemistry, you may have taken an engineering course that someone else wasn't able to take or even who knows, an English course so you could communicate in policy better. Um, there's really any way you could come at it. And I don't think there is a right or wrong path. That's the perfect answer. <laughs> uh, you've been really inspirational today. And I know that a PhD, even a master's program, can be very daunting at points. It can get very dark uh, very quickly. <laughs> so I'm curious, who's been there to inspire you and keep you going on your path? Well, I should first say I have a wonderful partner and cat at home. Uh, my cat's name is David Byrne, and he is the light of my life. Uh, but I also have um, pretty nice lab mates, I have to say. Um, 
actually you had Jasmine Chase on this and Jasmine is a master's student that we work closely together and she's been a delight. And then I also have really enjoyed connecting with uh, Alexis Ball, who you also had. So I have to give them credit as being my support system in th- during this PhD. I think we have some of the best grad students at UBC, maybe in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. You mentioned that at one point you'd like to have grad students of your own. Um, in this hypothetical future where you are taking on grad students, what will you be looking for when you're recruiting them? Oh, that's a great question. Also, very intimidating to think about supervising graduate students at this time. <laughs> um, I think that most skills can be taught, but someone that is friendly and that you want to be around is definitely going to be a top quality. Um, I mean, as, as long as someone's genuine. I would, I would never want to have like too long of a list of qualifications other than being a nice coworker. <laughs> um, anything else can be taught. Excellent. Yeah. Who wants to work with mean people? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Be nice. Welcome to the lab. Excellent. I'm, again, I'm going to ask another daunting question. You're at the beginning of your career. I want you to look toward the end of your career. What would you like to have as your professional legacy when you retire? Um, I guess I hadn't really considered that. Um, or what should we write on your career's tombstone? Hmm. I'm not really sure what I would want my tombstone to say, but I think I would like to have a farm and maybe be buried at my own farm. That's all I can really think of. What kind of farm? Plants or animals? Or both? Maybe a little of both. At least chickens. Oh, nice. Yeah. I would love to have a farm. That's, But I think that's every PhD student's side dream when they're in the middle of it. Sheep? Maybe sheep. Goats. Definitely goats. They seem sweet. Oh, yes. Especially the little, little jumping ones. Yes. That would be great. A petting zoo. Oh, yes. Who even needs <laughs> academia at this point? <laughs> One final question. Um, again, you're at the beginning of your career. Uh and your field is still very young and um, very uh, well changing. And really, every field these days is changing at uh, an amazing rate. Uh, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be unrecognizable by the time that they retire. So what changes do you see coming to environmental geochemistry? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of these changes and get ahead of the curve? That's a great question. Um I often think in environmental science, at the moment, we might be missing our call to collaborate with people in the humanities. And I say that because we really easily venture into the realm of philosophical environmentalism, which I think we can speak to to a degree. But um, there's a really rich vernacular that's been developed by people in the humanities thinking about these questions. And I would love to see more collaborations crossing those lines um, and helping us communicate and maybe question better. Um, And hopefully that would relate to then a new group of people in the world. But yeah, maybe too many scientists right now writing philosophical books. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not content just uh, collaborating with other scientists. Now you want to drag the arts into your circles. I know. I'm going to drag everybody into my mess. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful dream. And I think that would also be a great uh, professional legacy. Could be. Could be. Well, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? I don't think so. I think it's been great. 
Great. Well, thanks for sitting down and sharing your, again, freaky science and um, delightful approach to to life. And um, yeah, just painting a wonderful picture on what could otherwise be a gloomy subject. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth.